It's Monday, July 17th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Rex Hureman has been on my mind. He is that alleged serial killer from Long Island. I guess it's the Long Island thing, but maybe it's the details of the man thing that keeps me compelled. Rex Hureman stole fruit from the Whole Foods. He was kicked out of Whole Foods for stealing fruit. That is the sort of thing that a more obvious type person might say, what kind of serial killer steals fruit from the Whole Foods? Also, what kind of person can get away for over a decade with killing human beings, but can't get away with stealing fruit from the Whole Foods? I do not mean in any way to diminish the crime or the tragedy, I suppose, allegedly. Originally, many of the people quoted, neighbors, talked about him being just a normal guy. But then when a layer was scratched and people who knew him better were interviewed, they all said, oh no, this was the creepiest mofo on earth. To wit, Halloween trick-or-treaters who got candy from his house, their moms would intercede and throw the candy out. Other neighbors talked about him swinging an axe in his front yard, looking at them menacingly. There is an anecdote, sure, it's in the New York Post, but it seems, well, it was confirmed on TikTok. A young worker in the architecture industry met him, talk got to serial killing, serial killing podcasts. Hey, have you heard about the Gilgo Beach Killers? He asked, ha ha ha, from what I know, that could be you, she said she was. And I'm not going to say that all uses of this term are acceptable, but in this case it is, she was shook. Rex Hureman, the other notable thing and horrible thing, is that he preyed on prostitutes or at least when he killed them, they were called prostitutes. Now they're retroactively called sex workers. Extremely sad for the human beings involved, but extremely common. And if you look at the list of unsolved serial killing, not by notoriety of the victim's name, there's an alphabet killer because of the coincidence or maybe intentional fact that all his victims had the same first and last initial. But in terms of number of victims, it is quite common for the most prolific, don't love that term, but most prolific serial killers, their victims to be prostitutes. Why? For the same reason that Dahmer was allowed to get away with it for so long, or at least escaped detection. The victims who are least likely to be noted are the most disposable by society. And to this day, there are many, many unsolved crimes of the murders of prostitutes, where if it's not for the fact that the killers have, I'm not going to say a wish to be caught, but love to taunt, as this Rex Hureman did when he called one of the victim's family members, as he did when he engaged with people in professional architecture circles and talked about the Gilgo Beach killers, as he did just by acting weird, menacingly, and, you know, violating the laws of Whole Foods, Rex Hureman is similar to a lot of killers who go uncaught, and his victims are similar to a lot of victims who never get justice. On the show today, it is a two-parter, and we will talk to Andrew Weiss about a different kind of killer, if you want to talk about prolific, and that is Vladimir Putin, who recently, I guess you could say, put down Yevgeny Prigozhin's mutiny. It did surprise the world. It was not so surprising to Russia experts the world over, of which Andrew Weiss is one. 
He's a former Pentagon and State Department official turned Russia researcher with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Andrew Weiss explains details that you may not have realized to put into context Vladimir Putin's near mutiny. Andrew S. Weiss up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. We're joined once more by Andrew Weiss, the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His graphic novel biography of Vladimir Putin, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin, I can announce is a suggested school reading at my son's school. And guess what? Since it's a graphic novel and I think one of two on the list, he went for it and he likes it. It's a great book. Andrew was on to talk about it. He's back to talk about the latest developments in Russia and Ukraine. Welcome back to The Gist. Oh, it's great to be here, Mike, and thanks for the nice words about the book. I'm especially gratified to hear that your son went for it. Yeah, well, he was, you know, he has to be forced to read some book, and so graphic novel, I guess, was the closest to a YouTube video, but it is a great book, and I would recommend it to everyone. So when we last spoke, it was before, it was when Yevgeny Prigozhin was a monster on Putin's leash. He has since come off the leash a bit. Since his mutiny slash revolution slash uh, radical restructuring of personnel matters within the Russian military, what has come into focus um, compared to what was opaque and in a black box at the time? A little bit, not a ton. So let's just peel this back a bit. Yevgeny Prigozhin is a publicity hound in a, the Trumpian way. So he, you know, live tweets every thought and has been using that to create a lot of uh, reputation for himself in political circles in Russia and by extension in the outside world. But he is not someone who his actual role is understood. And what happened in this mini-mutiny on on, uh, June 24th, I think we're all still trying to figure it out. So let me unpack that for a second. Russia is a country run more or less by the security sector. It is a sprawling national security apparatus with all sorts of components. You know, we all remember from the Trump era, the 17 US intelligence agencies, Russia has vastly more than that. And they are fiefdoms under themselves with budgetary and political influence. And they all are run by people who hate each other's guts. And even within these institutions, there are separate subgroups of people who all hate each other's guts. And they're competing for more patronage and more resources. Prigozhin came along about going to the sort of 2010, 2011 period as someone from Putin's hometown who started delivering things to the regime through a sort of off-the-books arrangement. And so now we've seen a teeny little part of how that Russian security apparatus operates 
And obviously, Prigozhin overplayed his hand and did these really dramatic things. He shot down a bunch of helicopters containing Russian servicemen. But his core complaint was not Putin must go. It was that these other guys must go. These right. guys who failed you, Mr. Czar, your defense minister, your, your military chief, I'm the guy you can count on. And so it's a very self-serving uh, mutiny. It's not intended to change the way Russia was ruled. It was to line Mr. Prigozhin's pockets and make him more powerful in the broader, you know, sort of political Byzantine world of, of Russian politics. How sincere was that complaint? He really wanted Putin not to go? Or was it more that even he knew that if he put Putin in his crosshairs, he'd be obliterated? Everyone knows that Putin is the center of the system. People since the war began have had a lot of questions of why is this man doing this? You know, why has he put Russia on this completely self-destructive course that's now led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people, that's, you know, destroyed 30 plus years of globalization's benefits for Russia, has made it a pariah country. So, I mean, Anyone who's paying attention in the Russian elite has to be asking them questions, some asking themselves questions. What the hell is wrong with Vladimir Putin? But the other flip side of this is that the Russian elite are servile. They are scared, they are submissive, and they are complicit. So no one in the Russian elite wants to get on Putin's bad side. And you know, Putin now sees that you know there are people inside the security services who've been not with the program who've you know created divisions and that's made Russia less def- less effective dealing with its big enemies and the United States and Ukraine most prominently among them so Putin's job now is how do you reunify a very disunified system how do you make it more functional and the problem that makes that task almost impossible for him is that he likes dividing people. He likes having these competing power centers because that's how he asserts his dominance, is being the person who sort of arbitrates disputes among competing centers of power. Right. So my question was, though, more of trying to get into the mind of Prigozhin. Do we think that he really didn't want to upend, uh, didn't really want to overthrow Putin? Do we take him at his stated word that he'd love to operate within the system with Putin as chief or, which which I could see the case for it. He's uh, flourished under that system and hates some of the other lieutenants under uh, Putin. Or do we think that he said, you know what, I'm the most powerful guy now. Let me run the show. Yeah, no, there's for the most part, there's no evidence that this was a power play at Putin's expense. The one slight footnote to that is that Prigozhin ran around essentially testing out, test driving some populist themes about fat cats and how the war was in the service of their interests. And the true patriots and sort of real Russians are being ripped off by their leaders. That was something that I think started to make him sound more like a political figure and, you know, a kind of you know, outflanking uh, Putin. But for the most part, this is a system that is built on trying to get more stuff and more influence Mm -hmm. for yourself. It's not about knocking off the top guy. And the system is sufficiently atomized where people are afraid to talk to each other. People are afraid to confide in each other. And the idea that you could build a coalition of supporters 
to challenge Mr. Putin. Right now, that's just, to me, seems less probable. What you're seeing more is the fracturing and further atomization of the Russian elite and a real sense that, you know, right now, after the mini-mutiny, you're going to be more closely monitored and the stakes are higher for people in terms of demonstrating loyalty and showing that everybody's with the program. And so I and that starts with Mr. Prigozhin. I bet you, you know, right now there's a long divorce proceeding going on because he has built a fairly significant role for himself in the security apparatus. And all these different parts of the Russian intelligence services are now kind of salivating over their ability to carve it up and get control over things that Prigozhin used to control. I want want to get to the what next, but I have to ask, how did that play, that populist messaging play with the public or with the only audience that matters, Putin? It played well with, to the extent Russians are paying attention, right? It's summer. Most Russians are out at their dacha. Russia is not a very political society. There are no elections. There's no public inclusion. Let me Most, not just the elites, have these summer houses? Yeah. No, that's that's part of Russian culture is to have a summer place. It's, you know, dacha is, in our minds, because we're Americans, we have these glamorous images of it. But it's more like having a tiny little summer house that's like more of a shack. It may not have running water even, but that, you know, it's yours or it's been in your family and it's a way to get out of the city. And that's where life kind of shifts in the summer, including for sort of middle class or lower middle class people in Russia. And the idea that Russians are sitting around glued to TV cable news or, you know, trying to you know, guess what's going to happen in the future of their political, you know, order. It's just not the way the country's set up. Like, it's a country that has basically atomized and uh, depoliticized the bulk of the population. And those people know that their participation in politics is not welcome. And at the same time, people are angry. Like, living standards have been on the, the you know steady decline for about a decade now. There's a real sense of disappointment that Russia's grandest period, which Putin presided over, is behind it. And now sort of tough times await. Yeah. So gleaning from what you're saying, I, I think before, 10 minutes ago, said to myself, okay, Prigozhin, not a man who got where he was because of wisdom and prudence. So he, by temperament, is this huge risk taker. And then he's also been rewarded in his life by being a wild man, certainly playing a wild man, but doing wild things. I kind of thought it was completely insane to start a mutiny and try to carve out this, oh, but it's not against Putin message. But you've convinced me it wasn't insane to him and it might not even be insane in the system. In other words, I thought he just signed his own death warrant, but maybe he didn't. Yeah, so we've built up these sort of comic, and this is a big part of the book. that uh, <laughs> Which you know, is a comic. <laughs> right, right. These sort of comic images that like anyone who, you know, has even the wrong thought in Russia is going to be, as, as Joe Biden was joking yesterday, served up poison. Um, and that, you know, this is this, you know, kind of uh, very efficient authoritarian state. Russia is a very inefficient authoritarian state in which the way that somebody behaves isn't always well choreographed. Like we know this from having watched the mess of the war for the past 500 plus days. The Russian military and intelligence apparatus are a shambles. They are really good at a couple of things. They're good at intimidating the dissidents and political opposition. Like they're very hyper-focused on that. So if you tweet something or, you know, do something that suggests you're a supporter of Navalny, you should be 
quite worried about payback. Mm, but mm. if you're running a military operation that involves seizing the capital of a neighboring country, you can do all sorts of incompetent, stupid things and keep your job. And that's that's the weird duality. And so we've built up in our minds this idea that Vladimir Putin is, you know, a very successful dictator. He's actually a rather lazy dictator who oftentimes in this case could have seen the writing on the wall for months that Prigozhin was having this very public fight with the military apparatus. They were saying he needed to uh, you know, put his troops formally under their control. He kept saying, no way. And they set a deadline of July 1. So the fact that tensions were about to come to the he- come to a head should not have been lost on anybody. But Putin was passive and procrastinated in dealing with the problem, and then it boiled over. So to me, this is more a reflection of inertia and his laziness as a leader than it is an indication that, you know, this is a... Um, uh, a system that has reached its, you know, peak of maturity. It's a system in decay and degradation. Right. So we use these uh, pejorative terms. He's a bully and a thug. Um, but we also say he's this evil mastermind. He It really is just bullying behavior to crush the dissidents. They're mo- much more easily crushed than a guy like Prigozhin. But also, what do we do with the fact that is it not just uh, Autocrat 101 that you can't let someone publicly do that without eroding your own status? Well, I mean, if you're talking about Autocrat 101, there's a great chapter that a friend of mine had sent me from uh, Machiavelli's The Prince that goes on at length about why mercenaries are horrible and you can't rely on mercenaries. So part of this is in the design of Wagner in its inception. And I'm sorry to be too historical here, but let's go back and and just kind of examine what Putin was doing. So in 2010, 2011, the Russian regime was really, as it normally was, was, was agitated about internal dissidents as a threat to the regime. And if you'll remember in 2011, 2012, there were these big street demonstrations. So around that time, Prigozhin created a troll factory in St. Petersburg that he put at the service of the Kremlin to go after the reputations of members of the Russian political opposition. And they would do, you know, horrible stings and, you know, things that were, you know, uh, injurious to their reputation online, as well as with the general public. And it was, you know, it was just kind of like candid camera gotcha, uh, muckraking and things like that. And it was quite effective, but it was off the books. And then in 2014, when the war started in Ukraine with the seizure of Crimea and the beginning of the undeclared war in Donbass, the, the Wagner people showed up. And they were a useful way to have a military capability that the Russian intelligence and security apparatus controlled, but was off the books. So there weren't body bags coming home so that average Russians didn't feel that this was a war that was directly affecting them or their children. In 2015, Russia intervened in Syria, and the same logic was there in that conflict as well, that they didn't want to have to tap average people to go do the fighting. It was better to have hired guns and people who didn't formally wear the uniforms of the Russian state 
doing a lot of the fighting. And Wagner and Prigozhin played a role in that conflict. Over time, that set of activities kept expanding, including a variety of deployments in places like Libya and other parts of Africa. So the Prigozhin Empire was like a mushroom that just kept getting bigger and had clearer oversight and connections to the Russian state. And then they had their one of their best moments in 2016 when they helped involve they were involved in the US political interference effort. And they were, you know, big, you know, backers of Donald Trump. So they were just involved in this endless period of Russia on the march and basically kicking America's butt and doing things to disrupt America's global role. That was a very useful and relatively cheap off-the-books capability that Putin and others relished having, and Prigozhin's fortunes flourished. As uh, the war in Ukraine unfolded in the first half of 2022, you'll remember that Russia was demolished by the Ukrainians. Their regular military was demolished. And they switched strategies as a result of the severe losses they took in the first months of the war. And they wanted off-the-books capabilities, so they started draining the prisons and bringing people in to do the fighting that no one was going to miss. They were expendable, right? If you had murderers, rapists, and drug dealers doing the fighting and conducting human wave attacks like we had in World War I, no one was going to miss those people if they all got wiped out. Yeah. And so it was a brilliant you know, effort by the Russians to take out Ukrainian forces who consisted of you know, school teachers and lawyers and the best people in that society who were up against drug dealers, murderers, um, and rapists. So that was what Wagner was up to. And at some point, the Russian military effort has never really recovered. And it became clear that the Prigozhin team was more effective at dealing with this war than the Russian military was. And that sort of set in motion this rivalry that I described that really created all the tensions leading up to the mutiny. And we will be back after a break. Stay tuned. We're back with Andrew S. Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And my question for this segment begins with the very notion of Prigozhin using rapists, criminals, murderers as soldiers for the Wagner group. I want to underline the point about the rapists and murderers because as it's been conveyed and reported, at least the impression I got was this was said to explain what was going on. Those were facts, but also it showed how Prigozhin and by extension Putin was merciless, how he would use any tactics. It explained why they were having some success because they treated these people, uh, the prisoners, rapists and murderers as expendable because they, they were. But the other very important thing is that Putin knew that he was vulnerable if he conscripted Russians who had families, who had uh, ties to the community, who would be lost. So it was kind of brilliant. Take away all morality. It wasn't just that he used these expendable humans as cannon fodder. It was that it avoided a huge vulnerability um, to Putin's ongoing efforts. So the question is... First of all, there's only so many prisoners to go around, even in a state like Russia. But the question is, without these prisoners and without those tactics, wouldn't it imply that Russia's war capabilities are seriously hindered? That's the $64,000 question, is who's benefiting the most from a war that drags on and on? And Russia has scale and mass on its side. 
Russia, just to throw out rough numbers, is a country of about 135, 140 million people. Ukraine is a country of 35, 40 million people. So there's a four to one or five to one advantage that Russia is always going to have. And it's vastly wealthier given the kind of economy Putin has created, which is you know yes. largely about uh, petrodollars and you know things that um, that generate cash money for the Russian government. Yes, and and the Ukrainian economy is was one of the worst in Europe. You can't even judge it based on that. It's how much uh, European allies and America are giving them in terms of the war effort. Correct. So the Ukrainian economy is is you know heavily now destroyed or disrupted by the war. Russia is fighting a war on a th- other countries' territory. So the you know the actual un- operate day to day operation and cash flows for the Russian regime are not impeded. Yes. There, there, you know, sanctions notwithstanding, Russia is, you know, right now the world's largest oil producing country or oil exporting country. So there's, you know, there's significant revenue that the regime captures every day just doing its thing. And that, you know, the other question you raise about sort of is there, you know, a constraint on Putin's ability to sustain the war if he were to you know, for example, do another second round of mass mobilization by drafting another couple hundred thousand young men. The short answer is there's definitely a couple hundred thousand young men out there to be potentially brought into the war who come from lower socioeconomic strata of Russian society who will be passive and will be sucked into this at the moment when Putin decides he needs to do that. So far, they've been able to stem some of the uh, personnel shortfalls that they're facing by paying people these exorbitant uh, signing bonuses and to you know make it seem like this is a thing that will benefit your family if you sign up and you'll get these cash advances plus a huge potential death benefit. So for the parts of Russia that live in the most, you know, uh, primitive and socioeconomically uh, challenged ways, this is not trivial money that's being dangled in front of them. So if, you know, you've got a couple kids and one of them signs up, that's not necessarily a, a, a thing that average people in the lower economic rung are going to turn their noses up. And every Ukrainian man of fighting age who can fight has been fighting and has been fighting for over a year, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still, you know, there are, you know, significant pockets of fighting age men in in Ukraine who have not been mobilized and who haven't joined the military. There are people Mm -hmm. who are joining in the first round. They joined these territorial kind of National Guard units that were aimed at their community and not being sent to the front. Um, But, you know, the ability to do that and not cause more... Uh, turmoil within Ukrainian society is, is more is more constrained than it is within Russian society, um, just because you know the war has been so much more disruptive and painful for Ukrainians than it has been for Russians. The goal for the last five hundred days for Putin was let's make the war not noticeable and let's make life seem basically the same for Joe Sixpack, and he's been quite successful at doing that. Yeah. Uh, two more questions. One is about the Belarusian involvement and uh, Lukashenko. The story is he came up with the solution that he would house Prigozhin. He was the intermediary. Do you buy that? Do you think that he, Lukashenko was the deus ex machina of this whole standoff? No, absolutely not. Thank I, you. I think <laughs> I think Putin had to make a decision, which is: Do you want to see lots of bloodletting? Do you want to see this mutiny put down forcefully? 
or in Russia, you know, especially among armed groups inside the government or criminalized groups, there's a tendency to reach understandings and to have these things be done in a way that's super murky, that's done face to face, and then you work it out and you de-escalate and de-fang problems for yourself. And, you know, there are other sides of Russian culture that involve crushing things brutally and, you know, no, no quarter kind of tactics. You know, both of those coexist. But in this case, I think it was far more important to Putin that he avoid a massive shooting uh, uh, for, you know, kind of uh, conflagration as the way of bringing this re uh, rebellion to an end. And now we've seen ever since, like, Prigozhin's back in Russia, Prigozhin's meeting in the Kremlin. There's, you know, even yesterday, Putin was recounting sort of proudly how he was chatting with a group of uh, Prigozhin's fighters in the Kremlin with Prigozhin present and trying to explain to them, you can keep fighting, you can keep being part of the Russian team here, and Prigozhin's not really your commander. There's this other guy who's been your commander. It's, you know, mysteries inside of mysteries, you know, like Putin has set himself on fire throughout this war. Like, let's not, you know, mince words. He has shown himself to be unable to control his emotions. And like, it's worth remembering why he's so fixated on Ukraine and the loss of Russia's dominant role in Ukraine. But every time he does something, he makes things worse. Mm -hmm. And his strategic objective here was to dominate Ukraine. He's been in power now for more than 25 years. He has created an entire enemy society right on Russia's doorstep that's heavily militarized, that's close to the United States and other Western governments, and that's going to be bent on vendetta and revenge for the rest of his life. It's a, it's a tremendous failure. Ugh. So from your trained eye, what should we watch out for to give an indication of the impact of sidelining Prigozhin or every, the conscription of troops, the fighting will and capacity of the Ukrainians? What are you looking out for that will give you some signs and signals beyond, you know, the reports that Russians have gained this city or Ukrainians have repelled Russians here or there? I am really focused on sustainment, which is, I know, not really a common term that we use. But the U.S. and its allies did not expect that they were going to be fighting World War I. We had a very different image of how we fought wars ever since the Gulf War in the early 1990s. And then after 9-11, we started, you know, toward these more kind of counterinsurgency models of fighting war. Yeah. What the yeah. Ukrainians It was like are... a joke. It was, uh, you know, a variation on the Obama um, dunk the 20th, the 90s called and they want their foreign policy back. Land war in Asia? Come on. What are you doing? You're part of the industrial military complex funding those tanks? Get real. Exactly. So we've had two big things. One is to get the Ukrainians everything we could as quickly as possible. And we've done that incredibly well to the tune of going on now, just for the U.S. portion, about $40 billion in military aid, which means helping them equip their forces, provide the intelligence and other things they need to make their forces more capable and more effective. The problem is they're up against a Russian enemy, which is very dug in and that relies on artillery to blast its, its way uh, through the war. And depending on whose numbers you use, I'll use the U.S. top military commander in Europe, General Chris Cavoli, who's our uh, supreme allied commander in Europe, he has said that on average, every single day since the war started, Russia has fired on average 20,000 artillery shells. 
And so keeping up with that is basically now the most important military challenge for the Ukrainians, is how can we get Western defense industry back online and producing basic things like artillery shells to keep up with that level of force that the Russians are expending in the war. And it's not easy. The focus in the debate is always on, let's give the Ukrainians, you know, fancy jet aircraft, or let's give them longer range uh, strike missiles and systems like that, which are all potentially very important. But what Putin has decided is that we can't keep this up. And that at some point, the U.S. is either going to run out of stuff to give the Ukrainians or in early 2025, we're going to have a new president named Donald Trump or someone like him who's going to look at this conflict and say, I want out and to try to put pressure on the Ukrainians to settle the war on Russia's terms. Those are his two big bets. Andrew Weiss is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He worked for Republican and Democratic administrations on Russia in the Defense Department, the State Department, just about every department you could imagine. And he is the author of the graphic novel, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It was great chatting with you. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>